I'm going to start the book of Galatians tonight. In order to understand what's going on, you need some background. And the background is political and religious. The question in Galatians is circumcision. What's happened is Paul has gone on a missionary journey through Asia Minor. He's planted some churches there and he's preached the gospel and so forth. And following along behind him are some people from the circumcision party out of Jerusalem. And these are also Messianic Jews. And we'll talk about the circumcision party in a little bit. But these are also Messianic Jews. These are not rabbinic Jews. And what they're doing is they're coming along and saying, yeah, 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 we know what this guy Paul told you, but we'll tell you what the real deal is, and the real deal is you've got to be circumcised. So that's the core question in the book of Galatians. Now, that's important for a number of reasons. The first reason it's important is the church is spreading among the Gentiles. And for an adult male to get circumcised is a big deal. This is not the trivial thing that is when you're eight days old. It's a big deal. So if the people following Paul are correct and circumcision is a requirement, then that's going to wind up turning off a lot of Gentile men because they're just not going to want to do that. So in that sense, it's a big deal. It's also a big deal politically because the Mediterranean is a Roman lake at this point, which is to say the Romans hold sway over the lands all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. And the Romans are really, really big on not having people rebel. There are loyalty tests, and of course one of the loyalty tests is a sacrifice to Caesar. What you were required to do is go to some temple, go to any temple you wanted, Diana, Zeus, you know, whatever your favorite temple was, and you'd offer up on that altar a pinch of incense to Caesar. And that was regarded as a loyalty test. Jews were exempt because Jews wouldn't do it. So they were regarded as what's called a religio licita, which is to say a legal religion that had long-standing customs before the Roman conquest, and so they were okay. One of the things that was going on, and it's especially prevalent in the book of Romans, but it's also prevalent here, is Gentiles would get the Holy Spirit and would get convicted that they weren't supposed to sacrifice to Caesar anymore and they weren't supposed to be in the pagan temples and so forth. And they would try and come into the synagogues because the Jews were exempt. And by the way, that's where the books were too. I mean, if you want to learn about this new religion that you just found the God of, the books were in the synagogue. So they would claim that there were Jews to get out of having to sacrifice to Caesar. The Jews would say, uh, okay, sounds good to us, but we've got a procedure to make you an official Jew, and that involves circumcision. It's a bone of contention in the book of Romans, and it's a bone of contention here, because if the Jews are seen as harboring fugitives from the Caesar cult, the Jews themselves are subject to get in trouble. If Rome regards the synagogue as a place where potential rebels who aren't Jews, but who also won't sacrifice to Caesar, can go and hide out, that puts the Jews in danger. 
So the Jews are not willing to have them come into the synagogue and partake of all of the protections of Judaism without actually becoming Jews. So there's all sorts of things swirling around this idea of circumcision. Now, why circumcision? Let's go back for a minute and figure out why it is that God chose that particular sign of the covenant of Abraham. That circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Why did God choose that particular sign? I mean, he could have had you put on an ear tag or wear a bone through your nose or get a tattoo on your forehead. And by the way, religions throughout the world have done all of those things as ways of marking their own. Why did he choose circumcision? In the book, Abraham and Ishmael both get circumcised at the same time. And Ishmael is 12 or 13 years old at that point. Up until that, what you have is a story of sexual free-for-alls. Remember, every place Abraham goes, he feels he has to lie about who his wife is because the local mayor or whatever you call him is subject to just sort of scarf up any woman that he finds attractive. And you have the business with Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the characteristics of that world at that time is it was basically a sexual free-for-all. Abraham has just finished using Hagar shamefully, and he will do so again. So the circumcision covenant is by way of God saying, you need to control your reproduction. Sex is given to you for lots of reasons, but it's a very powerful thing and it needs to be controlled. The idea here of cutting off the foreskin there is symbolically saying, you need to keep this under control. So that's sort of the basic reason for circumcision. The next thing that's going on is there's a conflict with the Pharisees. This goes clear back to Yeshua. And the conflict with the Pharisees in Yeshua has to do with the Oral Torah. What the Pharisees did is they added a bunch of stuff to the Torah for lots of reasons, one of which was to increase their own power. So when the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem, you had people who were former Pharisees, like Paul was, and they brought their Pharisaic attitudes into Christianity. And you see that being duped out in Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders about this question. So you got Paul and Barnabas, and you got these messianic Jews of the circumcision party, and they're arguing. So what they're going to do is go back to the home office in Jerusalem, and that sets up the Council of Jerusalem where they debate this question, and it gets answered. So verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Again, these are all messianic Jews. These all 
have the Holy Spirit, they all speak in tongues, all that stuff. They are not rabbinic Jews, they are messianic Jews. And you have this debate of the ones that used to be Pharisees are saying, hey, we understand that this is falling on the Gentiles. We've got to do something with these Gentiles. Why? We circumcise them and we tell them to follow Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and the editors were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Messiah Yeshua, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related to what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophet agreed, just as it had written, after, I'm not going to go through all this, down to verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, in other words, James is the president of the synagogue. Therefore, my judgment is that we do not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the idea here is give them enough Torah behavior that they can come into the synagogue where the books are and where Moses gets read, but put no other requirement upon them. And this, by the way, is the way Jews treat returning Jews. In other words, if you are a Jew that is a secular Jew and you come in and become a Baal Teshuvah and you come back to God, you will come back basically at your own speed. They don't dump everything on you. They bring you in, sit you down, let you listen to Moses, and Moses will then convict you and move you along at the pace that you're ready to understand. And that's what's being said here of the Gentiles. So, having said that, James made a decision. They had all this debate. Has anybody ever been in a church where strongly held opinions are settled by something like that? I will gently suggest that what happens is the ones that are losing are still wandering out among the Gentiles and saying, well, yeah, but you, know, you really need to do this, this, and this. I don't think that they have given up their opinion at all. So what's happening in the book of Galatians is these Pharisees of the circumcision party, Messianic Jews, are coming along behind Paul and are telling the Gentiles, yeah, 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 but you really need to get circumcised and follow the law. So again, the point here is they've got the Holy Spirit. You need to get them in where they can hear the word of Moses and where they can read the books. And this is sort of a minimum standard to be able to come in and, and sit and you're Moses and have fellowship with the Jews. Well, the idea here is don't lay anything more on them except what you need to get into the synagogue 
and then let Moses teach them. The last thing I want to talk about before we actually start the book, which I hope to do tonight, is Paul's attitude toward circumcision. One of the things that Paul is emphatically not doing is speaking against circumcision. The reason we know that is he has two disciples, Paul does. He's got Titus and he's got Timothy. And one of the things that he'll say in the book of Galatians is Titus is a Gentile. Born of Gentile mother and a Gentile father, no trace of Hebrew in him anywhere. And Paul drags Titus back to Jerusalem and wanders around with him as a disciple and so forth, and there is never any hint of a requirement that Titus be circumcised, even though Titus is a believer. Timothy, on the other hand, is born of a Jewish woman. His mother is Jewish. He is also uncircumcised. And before Paul takes him on his trip, Paul takes him into the synagogue and has him circumcised. So Paul is not anti-circumcision per se. That's not the point of the book of Galatians at all. The point of the book of Galatians is back at this council of Jerusalem. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. That's the point of the letter, and that's what he's talking about. And all of this that I have just talked to you about is background as to why that is so. Paul will now go through and explain why that is so. But you have to understand what he's working against, and he's working against people who are following around after him, who are of the circumcision party, and are saying to these new Gentile believers, uh, doesn't count if you don't get circumcised. So with that, Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not through men, nor through man, but through Yeshua Messiah and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. So Paul is talking about himself. He's an apostle. And he's also bringing everybody else in his camp with him at the heading of this letter. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeshua, by declaring himself the Son of God, is going directly against the Roman Empire. And so Paul saying, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, is doing messianic talk, kingdom talk, if you will. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Messiah, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Messiah. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. So what Paul is saying here is, the people who are coming after me and are telling you that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised, they are preaching something other than the gospel. Verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Messiah. By the way, this is not a friendly letter. When he writes, for example, to the Colossians, 
it's obviously a very warm and friendly letter. He really likes these people. It's a letter of encouragement and so forth. This is not. This is a starchy letter. At one point he's going to call them, you stupid Galatians. This is not a happy letter. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Yeshua Messiah. And of course he's referring there to being knocked off his ass on the Damascus Road. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. As you all, of course, remember, he was a rising hot dog in the synagogue in Jerusalem. In fact, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He says that I was not only a rising star, but I was a rising star beyond my age. In other words, I was very young for the positions I was given. Okay, so what he's saying is I was a hot rock in the Pharisaic system and was rising rapidly. And, oh, by the way, I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That's, again, a key thing. Because the rabbis regard the traditions that come from other rabbis as being more authoritative than the written Torah. They will all say that everything that they do derives back to some passage in Torah, but I will gently suggest that it isn't a reading of those passages that you or I would necessarily recognize. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what he's saying is, I am a genuine, for real apostle. My ministry is to the Gentiles. Because remember that the, the Council of Jerusalem divided the territory up. Peter got the mission to the circumcised. Paul got the mission to the Gentiles. And so what he's saying is, when God stopped me on the Damascus Road, I didn't go back to Jerusalem or I didn't go to any of the apostles to find out what this new thing was. I instead went out into the desert in Arabia and some will say, in parentheses, back to Mount Sinai, because that's where Sinai is, I went back there to hear directly from God. And what he'll say later is, I went down to Jerusalem after that process, and I in fact did talk to the church in Jerusalem, and they confirmed that everything that I believed was correct. So the sequence is, blinding light on the road to Damascus, falls off his ass, gets led into Damascus, where he is ministered to by Ananias. Then he goes out into the desert, hears from God, comes back to Damascus, preaches and teaches for a time, then goes down to Jerusalem, checks his version with their version and discovers they're identical, and then starts going off on his missionary journey. But what he's saying is here, he didn't learn any of this from men, he got it directly from God, and he'll have to say, he'll say later, and oh, by the way, I did check, and everything that I got was the same as they got. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, 
and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. When I went into the regions of Syria and Silesia, and I was still an unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Messiah. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Why was he going to Damascus? He had been given authority by the Pharisaic authorities in Jerusalem and was told to go to Damascus and root out this cult of Yeshua. And so he was on his way to do that, and he had letters of introduction and authority to arrest people and drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. That's what he was going for. And of course, as you say, God slammed him as he was on the road and said, why are you persecuting me? And at that point he changed, but he still has a wide reputation as being the one who was persecuting the church. And remember, Ananias didn't want anything to do with it. Holy Spirit had to come to Ananias and say, it's okay, you can take this guy in, you don't need to be afraid of it. So he's got this reputation of sort of being the Inquisitor General, and his reputation is all over the Eastern Mediterranean. And so as he's going around teaching, they don't know him personally, all they know is him by reputation. All right, let's stop at chapter 1, because we're not going to get very far in chapter 2. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.